Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. Okay, so we're going to get back into the Exodus and the Exodus story here. This gets moved down. Okay, so we made it past the plagues. All ten of them. Okay, so now I need to back up. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Passover, but I need to back up a little bit and talk about feasts in general because a lot of what happened is they were, they were feasts that were celebrated, and the majority of these feasts tended to be agricultural feasts or had to do with livestock. And uh, very early on, there was the Feast of Pentecost, for example. We think of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. Um, the... Uh, mosaic understanding of Pentecost is when Moses received the law. But before that, Pentecost was an agricultural wheat harvest. And so that was celebrated in the land. Um, in addition to that, there was a feast of booths or tabernacles that you may have heard of. And uh, that was the fruit harvest. And so they would celebrate, uh, when they would harvest the first fruits, they would celebrate the feast of booths. And then there was the feast of Passover. And Passover was originally the feast that was the new lambs or the new livestock that would be born. So if you think about it, you've got agricultural feasts, which include wheat and, or not wheat, but grains and all those things that are grown, and then fruit. So you have the, the wheat and everything that comes first in the barley, in the rye, and then later on in the season, you'd have the fruit that would come in. And then you have the uh, birthing of the animals, which is, that's usually in the spring, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So so basically different times in the calendar year, they would have these celebrations. And the idea and the understanding was that after having a successful harvest, then you want to give thanks to God. And you do that by prayer and sacrifice and then feasting, you know, some sort of celebration. So what came about later is that here we're talking about the types of animals that can be used and the types of grains and things that could be used. And so if you had a lamb or a goat, it would have to be a male unblemished, meaning no defects. It's not missing a leg or something like that. And uh, it would have to be a year old. And then that lamb would be roasted whole. And this is the Pentecost description. I mean, not Pentecost, the uh, Passover description. And so you'd roast the lamb whole. You'd put the blood on the doorpost, and then you'd have bread and herbs that you would eat along with it. And then whatever you ate, everybody ate. And then whatever you couldn't finish, you would have to burn it up, and then you would, because they were getting ready to leave. So the reason for this is that the, the Hebrews were in Exodus, and they knew that their time was short. So this was basically fast food. So you didn't have time for the bread to raise or anything like that before you bake it. And they even 
the way they dressed for it, even in the description, it was saying, gird your loins. You may have heard that. It's an expression if you're wearing a, a kind of a skirt thing, you kind of hike up the skirt and tie a rope around it so your legs are free to run faster. So the, um, the image there is that the Hebrews are going to be leaving and they have to do it quickly and they can't be looking back or going back. And so they're directed toward the promised land and it's the feast that they celebrate before they enter into the, the desert or the wilderness for those 40 years. So the, the food that they are going to uh, sacrifice would be the uh, lamb and it would have to be one per family. And if there were other families that couldn't or didn't or didn't have the ability to afford it or didn't have one at their um, possession, then they could join another family. And so this was the Passover meal that they celebrated. For preparation later on, uh, Passover took on a different mindset. There was a preparation that happened. And so preparing for the Passover feast, you get rid of all the leaven in the house. So anything that has any yeast or anything like that, you'd, you'd remove it all. And then you have seven days of unleavened bread, no work. And then you have a sacred assembly on days one and seven. And so Passover was a Passover week that was done. During the Passover, the, the patriarchs or the masters of the house would explain to the children why they were doing what they were doing. To this day, there's still a description about what the Passover is and what it means. So when the original Passover was celebrated, it was a Passover meal where they would eat this lamb and be in communion with God in that covenant before they passed over from slavery to freedom, from captivity to freedom, and uh, from oppression to liberation. And so it's also passing over from Egypt to Israel, the land that they would inherit. So that passing over is a process of passing over and passing through. In the subsequent generations, what they would do when they would celebrate Passover is they would remember back to that original exodus. And so if it was 200 years, 400 years, 1,000 years, or you know, 1,200 years later, um, Jews to this day remember Passover as not just, I remember that happening sometime in the past, but they connect themselves, their lives, and their families to the Exodus event. And so if I were doing a Passover as an observant Jew, I would have the Passover meal, but while I'm doing the meal, I connect myself to that original Passover. And my thought is, I am connected to the original Hebrews They were passing over from slavery to freedom and from Egypt into Israel. And then that is part of what they do when they celebrate the Passover. They they not only recall, but they place themselves back in those saving events because they have a connection to it. So in a real sense, that type of memory is more than just remembering something. It's placing themselves back in the event. In a Christian context, we also have a Passover, right? You all know this. We have the new Passover, which is in the, <clears throat> yeah, it's in the Eucharist. So, so what we do, um, following Jesus's command, 
is we place ourselves back in the saving events as well. And the saving events are Jesus' death and resurrection. And uh, that is where we also, through him, we go from death to life, from slavery to freedom, uh, to um, captivity, to um, from going from one land to the next is when we go from earth to heaven. And so there's kind of a similar vein in this. And in addition to that, it's also where Jesus himself goes from death to life and where Jesus himself goes from earth to heaven and, and then effects that salvation. And that all happened through the cross and the resurrection. And so we who participate in the new Passover and the Eucharist, we also are placing ourselves in the saving event of his death and resurrection. And we remember that not so much as a, a memory of the past, but we put ourselves in that saving event in a way that is similar to the Jewish understanding of the original Passover. All right, you following me on that? So you've got the original Passover, which was the lambs, and then you've got the Passover Passover, which is when they sacrificed a lamb and they would eat the lamb, and that eating of the lamb would bring about communion and connection with their covenant uh, God, and uh, that would be their communion or union with God. And in the new Passover, we have the Eucharist, where we also receive, which connects us in our communion with God. And uh, all three are related in, in, in different ways, but you can see there's a thread and a parallel. So you've got three different events there in the Bible. But in this case, we're talking about the second one, which is the Passover that the Hebrews celebrated after they left Egypt, but before they went into the promised land. All right, the actual exodus. <clears throat> this was a little harder to find. I was looking for good maps and stuff like that to find it well, but there are some various theories about where the, accident, where the exodus was and, and how it went, how many people went on the exodus and what the particular year was. And so some of this stuff they have what they call majority opinions and some are minority opinions. And so what, I, what I'm doing here is showing what you could consider a majority opinion. And that is that when they originally left the land, they crossed somewhere up north. And sometimes you, you think they crossed the Red Sea. And there, there are some people that say, well, it says the Red Sea, but it doesn't. It says the Sea of Reeds, which is different. And so that would be this area up in here. So when they, they crossed and you had the parting of the sea, and you all know that in great dramatic fashion in, in the Hollywood movies. But So it started crossing here, and that's where the uh, Pharaoh changed his mind again like he always did and then sent the chariots out, and the chariots got stuck in the mud, and then it reflooded. And uh, incidentally, uh, you may have heard this before, but there is a natural phenomenon where, where different winds and tides come in where the uh, sea can come out and come back in and that sort of thing. Again, we don't have to explain everything by natural phenomenon, but it, it is something that could be part of the equation. So they head on south, and they go down into Sinai. And then you've got this area in here in the south, and that's where the Theophany was, where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And there's a Mount Sinai in there, the traditional Mount Sinai. You may have heard that there are, are different Mount Sinais. And... Uh, the, the one that I would uh, say is most accurate is probably the one where, to this day, there's the monastery of St. Catherine there, and it's, 
It's down in this area of uh, Sinai, in the peninsula down there. <clears throat> then eventually they start working their way up north. And they come up until they reach the east side of the Jordan. And this is where they would cross eventually when they entered into the promised land with Joshua. But the 40 years talked about in the Exodus would be this time and in this area and with these travels coming up in here. These types of maps, they just kind of show it like a straight march or something like that. But keep in mind that uh, they had to have wandered around a little bit here and there and gone in different places. It's just natural the way that thing works. But, yeah. Okay, well, remember, 40 is an ideal number. And uh, how long would have it been if they would have just gone straight up? Okay, so there, were, there was a quicker way, and the quicker way would have been going up the shoreline here on the eastern side of the Mediterranean. But they couldn't go that way because you got the Philistines and everything else, you know. So basically that way was out. And then remember that Moses actually had some connection over here from his family. And then they had to travel up what they call the King's Highway, which would be on this side. And that would have... But... Looking at the map here, I don't know what it says. Now I've got to make a wild guess here. But I'm thinking that this area in here would be maybe uh, 150 miles or something like that. Yeah, something like I don't know. I might be wrong. Someone could pull out a map and look at it. But Yeah, maybe all, all said and done, 150, 200 miles or something like that. But it's not like it was a straight line. They were kind of curving and going all kinds of weird directions. You all know the joke about why it took 40 years from them to get from Egypt to uh, the Promised Land. It's all the men. They didn't ever ask directions. Uh, <clears throat> I can't believe you never heard that. So, the problem is, I've heard them all, one way or another. I can I can never remember them all, but I've heard them all. And so everyone says, "Father, I got this joke," and they start telling it to me, and I'm like, "Okay, when do I tell them that I've heard it?" You know. So. <laughs> okay, so in the original text, it talks about six hundred thousand people who went from Egypt to the Promised Land in that original Exodus, which is a large number. And if I remember right, it only included the men, and so it didn't even include the others. Um, the idea of trying to feed and water that amount of people in deserts, with even with good wells, would be you know pretty hard to do. It's not that God couldn't have made that happen, but but I think a more reasonable explanation is that, and this is kind of the majority opinion, that it, you would exaggerate the numbers for emphasis, and it shows that God was with them. And it also gives the Israelites a certain um, idea of God's power in bringing them from Egypt into the Holy Land. And by the way, and I, I think I mentioned this before, in ancient literature, it was totally acceptable to exaggerate um, events and numbers and things like that to bring about a greater reality. Okay, so from that, the Israelites despoil the Egyptians, all right, and it's like before they left, they ended up taking a bunch of stuff from Egypt and the 
and this was part of the end of the plagues. Part of that is just kind of like war spoils. So it kind of shows that if you're taking spoils, that you are the victor. And so that's the reason why that's there. Everyone and everything leaves. Nothing is left behind. You know, so they're taking everything with them. It, it talks about 430 years that they're in captivity in when they're in slavery. And then again, those numbers may or may not be historical, but it kind of shows there was a period of time by the time Joseph and, and uh, the Hebrews were in Egypt. It was a period of time until there was the exodus out. And the, the idea of all those being brought out, males are God's property, so that would be animals as well as the people, humans and clean animals, which to, are needed to be sacrificed. And so some unclean animals were used as well for various things. And, but anyway, they, they, it wasn't just like the people went on a march. You know, they brought all this stuff with them. And incidentally, it's also theorized that, um, I mentioned that 600,000, the uh, kind of the majority opinion on this is that there was a number that, that came through with the original exodus, but there may have been additional exoduses that happened over time. And maybe that number reflects that, or um, maybe it's just a combination of all these different things. But since I mentioned before that, you know, we just don't know because it was so long ago, there were no historical records that kept track with it. What we can go on is the Bible and to try to understand it in its, in its context in which it was written and the times in which it was written. All right, the number 40, like the 40 years in the desert, that was considered an intimate time uh, with God. So you'll notice in, in later writings in the Old Testament that there's this, there's this understanding that that was like on retreat in a sense. So, yes, it was 40 years when they were in the desert and there were challenges and there was betrayals and disobedience and punishment and restoration and all that. Um, but the 40 years in the desert is considered to be a sacred, holy time where God was intimately involved with his people forming them before they went and entered into the uh, Holy Land. All right, you might remember in Jesus's um, goes out in the desert for 40 days. So again, that's like he's spending intimate time with the Father before he goes and, and begins his mission. You know, so it's got a similar uh, parallel that happens there. There's also a pattern that happens where the people complain and then Moses intercedes for the people and then God acts. Then they're all happy for a little while, and then they complain again. So you also have this idea that the, uh, those, those Israelites in the desert, you know, they're just whiners, you know, and they just whine and complain. And Moses would get all upset about it, and, and then uh, eventually God would intervene, and then there would be the um, whatever forgiveness or restoration that needed to happen, and, and then it would start all over again. So there's a bit of a cycle that happened in that as well. There was a a sign of the presence of God, and this is the cloud. So you've got this presence of the cloud, and then you also have fire, and then you have smoke. And they would set up their camp, and there would be the tent. Eventually, this would be the tent and the tabernacle where the uh, Ten Commandments would be held, the law, and then that would be considered also the presence of God. And in the ark, as well as the tent, there were regulations and rules about who could sacrifice and where. 
And uh, as that was being developed, though, visibly there was this cloud and there would be a fire that would move with the camp and with the, cl- and with the, uh, uh, the tent as it went on. If you remember, in the uh, transfiguration, while Jesus was there with Peter, James, and John, what happened? There was a big cloud that came down, right? So that's symbolic of the presence of God. You know, so the next time you're in a fog, go to the coast sometime, you're like, this is just like you know, God's here. But anyway, it's... Uh, um, it's one of those signs and symbols. Okay, so we have a couple miracles that happen. One is the manna, and then the other is the quail. So the manna, people wanted bread to eat, and so then God sent manna in the desert for the people to eat. Now, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and God sent the manna. It wasn't Moses, but God who sent the manna, and I am the the new manna, you know, the new bread of life. But... It is somewhat interesting because there is a natural kind of hoarfrost that can develop, and it still to this day happens in, in certain areas around the Sinai. And it's like a very fine uh, sheet. And uh, I'm trying to remember what it comes from. I think it comes actually from insects. But now I may be wrong, but for some reason I'm thinking it comes from the saliva of the insects or something. What is it? Look it up, someone. The what? Tamarisk tree? tree? You sure? Well, anyway, we'll look that up later. This way it'll get you, get you thinking. So, but anyway, there was a fine layer. The tree would be more fun, I think. So, <clears throat> think about this fine layer they had to collect. And then when they collected it, it would be something that would be edible. And so that was, it looked like bread and kind of tasted like bread. And so they, uh, they would eat that. But... Um, even if it occurs naturally, it doesn't seem that it would be possible for that much to accumulate naturally. So God must have sent more than what would have been natural for them to be able to have enough to actually eat. And then the other one was the quail, you know, God sending birds. They were complaining because they didn't have the meat to eat. And so God sends birds and the sending of the birds was also uh, something of a, a migrant migratory pattern or something like that that gets shifted. But um, in the process, they got their quail or their meat. And this is just basically God caring for his people. And um, also being reflected in that is that the people didn't always appreciate what God was doing. And so they would complain and then God would do what he needed to do to uh, give the people what they needed, but then reinforce that they needed to trust in him, that he didn't bring them out in the desert to die. And, of course, um, they would remember back and say, oh, in Egypt, we had it so good. We had, we had all these leeks and we had all these different, you know, grains and breads. And, and uh, you know, but God would have to demonstrate again and again that, no, you're actually blessed to be with me. And you're blessed to be in, in uh, communion as well in this covenant relationship with me in this exodus that I'm taking you into the promised land, the land that is filled with milk and honey, meaning once you get there, you're going to have more than enough food to eat, and you're going to have plenty. Plenty to you. All right. Along the way, though, uh, there were particular wars and battles that could happen. And you've got the Amalekites, and there's that battle with Moses. And uh, you all might remember this because it worked its way into the readings as well. And you've got Moses who's, 
who's praying, and as he's praying with his hands in the air, things are going well in the battle, but then he gets tired and the arms start coming down. And then when that happens, they have to uh, prop him up. So they, they uh, kind of lift his arms up so that he can continue to keep him raised. Well, once again, that's just another sign of God's power. And uh, it's a sign that they depend on God's power for their victory. They don't depend on their own skill. Because remember, they always talk about Israel as being you know, the smallest of nations and the most insignificant of people, yet somehow God raises them up. And so that's just another sign of that. Eventually, what happens is there are so many people that keep coming to Moses for everything that they, uh, they have a hard time. He has a hard time keeping track of it all. And so finally, people say, you need to get some other people to help you. And so they get some elders in the community who act as judges so that Moses gets a little help when it comes to um, laying down the law and helping to enforce it. And so now I'm going to talk a little bit about covenants in general. Let's see what we're at here. Okay, so I mentioned this already. But a covenant is a combination of a lot of different things. It is a contract between two parties. Um, It's an alliance between two parties. There is an agreement between two parties. There's a bond that happens. And there's a treaty or an understanding that gets spelled out and understood. And then there becomes a pledge of loyalty. A covenant agreement, in its original sense, was something that neighboring tribes did or neighboring countries, and they would get the leaders of the particular tribes, families, or countries to come together, or cities, city-states a lot of times, and they would have these agreements that they'd work out. And this was the traditional form that happened. And what happens here is that God enters into a covenant agreement with Israel in a way that reflects what they would have expected in other covenant agreements that happened in political situations around them. And there are six parts to an ancient covenant. The first one is, there is usually someone who is in the superior position. So if, if, I, if I'm the more powerful king and I'm meeting with the least powerful king, then I'm in a superior position. And so I come at the agreement with a position of power. You know, so usually with covenants, there would usually be one or another of the two parties that would come in with a dominant position. Then there would be one assures the other party that the superior can fulfill his oath. So if I'm the superior king and I say, tell you what, I'm not going to attack you and I'm not going to pillage and steal all your stuff and I'll protect you if someone else does. Well, there would have to be some way that I reassure the other party that they will be protected and I will be able to not only say and agree to something, but I can fulfill that agreement. Then you got the regulation. So the regulation would be over time that there has to be some responsibilities and there needs to be some demonstrated action and loyalty between the two people who make the agreement. Then usually there is a safe deposit, which means there's something that that creates that agreement. And then there are regular public readings or a proclamation of what that agreement is. So on a yearly basis, for example, I will 
you know, publicly proclaim that we have this covenant agreement with this other king, and then they are, they are expected to do the same. Usually there would be witnesses. So it wouldn't be just me and the king. We'd have some people around as well, two or three witnesses, to be able to um, make sure that what we're saying and doing is, is being witnessed by others. And then at the end, there would be blessings and curses. The blessings would be, these are the things that will go well if we keep the covenant. And the curses would be things that we would say, well, if you don't hold your end of the bargain, here are the ramifications or here are the cursings. uh, And that would be part of it as well. So we could see these parts of the ancient covenant in the covenant at Sinai. For example, God who says, I am the Lord, your God. That means I am your master. I am your God. I am your Lord. And then he would be obviously the superior party. So the other one, um, I who, so God, when he says, I who am your God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jake, I who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So he's assuring his uh, Hebrews at this time that he has the ability and the authority to fulfill the covenant. And there are certain regulations and responsibilities, you know, like the Mosaic law would be an example of that. Um, You'll be my people. I will be your God. And here's what you do. You don't worship other gods. You don't murder. And anyway, there's, there's kind of some stipulations and regulations there and the safe deposit or regular public readings. Well, that would be just restating the covenant agreement. And sometimes the the deposit would be like the Ten Commandments, for example, would be that. Um, But there would also be just the public statements where they read the law to the people to reaffirm themselves. And they say, yes, we we hereby reaffirm ourselves. We will, you know, we will follow God. You know, and they have that sort of thing. Who are you going to follow? We will follow God. So they reaffirm uh, that covenant agreement. Witnesses. Now, this is kind of interesting because, because God can't have witnesses because he's God. There aren't other gods that are going to witness for him. He actually does it by himself. Or since there are no other gods, sometimes there are other like symbolic witnesses. Like there are these stones that they place in witness before they cross over into the promised land. Joshua places these stones. And so that's almost symbolically acting like a witness. But basically, since God is God, and there aren't other gods. He doesn't need witnesses, so he swears by himself a lot of times. So you hear that language, you know, I myself swear, or by my own self, I, you know, and so that just shows um, they're still using the formula, but they're doing it in an appropriate, an appropriate way. And then you've got the blessings and the curses. Well, Deuteronomy has a good list of these blessings and curses. Choose life, and if you choose life, you will have blessing. I put before you the blessing and the curse, and you pick which one you want. And, you know, that also is part of the agreement. But you can see those, those aspects of the covenant. It's what the ancients would have understood. So when Jesus talks about that new covenant, we can look back at the old covenant and we can say, okay, those aspects get applied, but in a new way and in a greater way. And so that gives us a, a little bit of a challenge, I think, whenever we think of the new covenant to maybe think about it maybe in slightly different terms. We have to incorporate what the old was but at the same time to expand it so that it, the new covenant isn't contained only within the old, but it, it does at least start there. Does that make sense? Yeah, but it's, sometimes people get a little legalistic and they think of the covenant as a legalistic law, but it's much more than that. It's, 
it's like a sacred agreement and it's a familial uh, setting and it's this give and take and relational thing. So it's much different than just, you know, here's your rules and here's your regulations and live it. So it's much more intimate than that. When Moses does take the Ten Commandments, he brings it and presents it to the people. And at first, you know, I'll know about the, the calf. We'll get to the calf in a little bit. But what the people say initially is, is all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. You know, that's their public affirmation. That all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And then God rested in the cloud seven days before calling Moses. Moses spends 40 days with Yahweh up on Mount Sinai. Notice that 40 in there. And then there's 40 years in the desert. At the same time, you've got these liturgical and religious um, precepts that are being start, they're starting to be put into place. And that goes into the instruction and the law that the Hebrews, soon to be Israelites, are going to have to observe. And uh, to this day, when they talk about the law, and actually the law even in the time of Jesus and before, there were 613 individual precepts of that law. Yes, we have the Ten Commandments, but there were other laws in addition to that. And so the idea is that they don't just follow the law like a, a set of legal agreements, but they enter into the law and live the law. And so that's the understanding that they would have had at that time. Um, again, it's, it's caught up in the understanding of that holiness code. God is holy. He calls us to be his chosen people. We should be holy. Therefore, we need to live by following the law and entering into the law so that we reflect the holiness of God himself. So how do we do that? We do that morally by following the Ten Commandments. So we do it in our purifications, in our rituals, purifications and cleanliness, and also even in their diet and what they do. And so all those things are supposed to reflect the holiness of God. And the Hebrews living it, are supposed to be entering into that very holiness, and that's why they do it. It's not just because, well, here are these arbitrary laws we have to follow. You know, they, they did it with purpose and intention. Okay, so we have the golden calf. You all know that story, right? So Moses comes down from the mountain, and here all of a sudden Aaron, who's supposed to be the one preserving everyone in the true faith, and all these ringleaders... They molt all their, and, and granted, it's been a while. Maybe they're afraid. Maybe they're thinking they need to do something. We'll offer a sacrifice or we'll pray. And so they, molt, they melt down all their gold and they make this calf. Now, this is another interesting thing in, in uh, ancient history is that what they used to do is they would have these calves or cows or bulls, and they wouldn't necessarily worship the bull itself, but they would place their particular god on top of the bull. The Canaanites did this all the time. It was something that was very popular. And so what they would do is they'd have the bull and they'd put the Astarte or different gods up on top of the bull as the bull just being the strength in which the god resides, you know. So it's not the bull itself that was typically worshipped. But what's interesting is whether or not Aaron was doing it in that way, the the idea of making a bull um, that God would ride upon does seem to reflect that historically. And since God or Yahweh is not visible, then they could have been building this bull in, in an image or a style that would have been similar to what the Canaanites would have done, but they would have had an invisible um, God on top of it. But regardless of what people guess, and that's what some people guess, um, the text says that they worshipped this particular bull. 
And then Moses, of course, was not happy, so he broke the Ten Commandments. And uh, this is also when the Levites ended up killing off a bunch of people who didn't want to follow the right way of worship, which gave symbolically gave the Levites the power to be the priests and the particular people that they were called to be. So you have an institution of the Levitical priesthood right here. And then afterwards, you've also got the priesthood of Aaron, which tends to get reinforced. Okay, so let's see. So here's a, in Exodus 34. Thus the Lord passed before him and cried out, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in kindness and fidelity, continuing his kindness for a thousand generations and forgiving wickedness and crime and sin, yet not declaring the guilt, the guilty guiltless, but punishing children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation for their father's wickedness. Okay, so blessings has said that Hebrew word means loving kindness so and fidelity. So you've got a thousand generations, and then for the guilty, you've got third and fourth generations. So it's, it's weighted to blessing over to punishment. Another interesting thing, when Moses comes down from the mountain, that... I see Felix waving to me about something. <laughs> so, oh, to you, okay. <laughs> All right. When when. Okay. Well, if you know what's going on, it's, it's our deacon Felix. So. Okay. This is when you can't look at God face to face and live. So there's this idea of God passing by. And so, so Moses had to just kind of get a glimpse, but not really see him. And, and it's kind of reflected in that because God's so holy and awesome that if you actually saw him face to face, you would die. Um, but God passes by. And then Moses becomes uh, radiant. And so radiant that he has to veil himself. But anyway, the, uh, when he comes down to the people, the people see him and he's still radiant. He's still glowing. And so, therefore, they kind of veil him just as a sign of that holiness that he received just by God passing by. Um, how many of you ever seen the uh, Moses of Michelangelo? You ever seen that one? So how did Moses look? Did you guys notice Moses had horns, right? And you're thinking, why did he have horns? Huh? Well, it is true that on ancient altars, they would put horns, and those horns were symbolic of strength. But that's not why uh, Michelangelo painted horns on Moses. The, uh, <laughs> no. It is a mistranslation. Actually, it's kind of funny because when he came down from the mountain, the uh, word that when Jerome translated into the Vulgate, um, he thought it meant horned. But it really meant was radiant. You know, so he wrote in the Vulgate translation that Moses came down from the mountain horned. And then later on, when Renaissance art, artists who were using the Vulgate translation um, put, because the words are very similar, they, they actually painted Moses as being horned. You know, but then later on, they found that in the original Hebrew, actually the correct word would be radiant, not horned. So anyway, that's why he has horns. little side note. But anyway, it's not the end of the world. He looks pretty good with horns. Kind of gives strength. 
I know, Michelangelo's. In uh, Italy, I always thought like Leonardo da Vinci would be the most popular of all the artists and all this sort of thing or different ones. But really, all the, all the people, all the Italians, all they talked about was Michelangelo. So I think he was the most popular. All right, so we're going to... Okay, I show, I'm showing this because you know how we typically see the uh, this... We typically see the Ten Commandments, they, they're kind of rounded, like arced on top. But the more traditional understanding of the Ten Commandments are that they were kind of squared off blocks like that, more so than rounded, you know, kind of uh, door-looking things. And the other is that the, uh, the carved-in letters and things like that, I think the original idea was that it kind of went through, that it kind of went through the stone, but... But anyway, that's kind of a minor thing. No one knows, of course, because we don't have the Ten Commandments. It was just kind of the uh, oldest tradition. All right, so now I'm going to talk a little bit about the uh, other books. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I'm not going to spend as much time on these books because I've spent so much time and we just made it through Exodus. And uh, part of that was what I wanted to do is really focus on that, trying to get your mindset in the ancient world where you can start thinking along those lines because now you're able to look at some of these other books and apply them in a way that's just a little more, uh, a little more realistic rather than just kind of like rushing through it all. So I'm not going to spend as much time on these next books coming up. Okay, so first of all with Leviticus. Leviticus is what I like to say is the, uh, it's, it's the book that pretty much stops the I'm going to read the whole Bible by itself. Like people start, they're going to, I'm going to read the whole Bible from front to back. They start reading and then all of a sudden they get through Genesis. Hey, that was kind of fun. Genesis has a lot of good stories. Then they get to Exodus. Hey, this is pretty good too, you know? And then they get to Leviticus and they're like, oh, wow. It's like all these rules and laws and what's going on. And, and uh, last month or two months ago, I decided I was going to go through and read all the books that I, I don't read so much. So I read Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and some of these other ones and um, I actually enjoyed Leviticus a little more than I thought I would because I hadn't read it in quite a few years, really. It's an easy one to skip, but it is kind of important for a lot of ways. <laughs> well, you know what I mean, because like some books are just easier to read, you know? All right. So first of all, there are four parts to the book of Leviticus. So let's get on that. So the first seven chapters, we've got sacrificial rituals. Uh, 8 through 10, we have priestly installations. 11 through 16, we have all those rules about clean and unclean. And then 17 through 27, this is where we have the holiness law. All right, so let's briefly go over some of that. So the first seven chapters has to do with ritual. And that would be burnt offerings, cereal offerings, sin sacrifices, there was a certain way that the Israelites were supposed to offer sacrifice, and they had to follow a particular ways of doing it because it reflected their obligation as a people to offer sacrifice in a way that would be um, giving glory to God who brought them um, out of slavery and captivity and is bringing them into the promised land. And so they would have burnt offerings that they would do, and they would have to follow that. And so there's a description on how that happens. Then there's the priestly installation. And so there was a certain way that priests were installed. That would be the priest of Aaron. And then 
to a lesser degree, some of the Levitic priests. So let me back up for just a second. But um, there were those 12 tribes, right? And one of them is the tribe of Levi. If you notice on any map, you'll see the 12 tribes, but you won't see Levi with his own land. And the reason is, is because Levi is a special tribe that doesn't have land, but it may have cities. It does have some cities, but they are supposed to be a particular tribe to serve God and his people. And so they are the priestly tribe. And so the Levites would go into the households and they would offer sacrifices and lead uh, religious um, ceremonies. And they would also be the ones to assist at the temple, even though they wouldn't necessarily be the ones offering sacrifice at the temple. The priests of Aaron, they're the ones that are in charge of the major sacrifices. So they would be the ones in the temple offering sacrifice. They had the, uh, the priesthood of Aaron. And so the Aaronic priests would be the, the biggest, most important ones offering sacrifice in the temple. The Levites would have a role in assisting the priests of Aaron and his descendants. And then individual families, they would have sacrifices and prayers they would offer, but not to the degree of the Levites or, or the priests of Aaron. Does that make sense more or less? Um, did the Levites have religious ceremonies in every... T- yeah, they were scattered through the whole land. And they could. Every, every town may or may not have had Levites, but the Levites were in the area and they would have been doing that. And so the assumption is that I guess if a city's big enough and if a city was, uh, they had a temple in the south, but in the north they didn't. And we have to remember, too, that the temple wasn't fully established, especially in Jerusalem and all that, until after the time of Solomon so or King David when he brought the ark back up. But prior to that, the Levites had more of a familial role, so they would kind of work within families. They're kind of like priests on hire. I don't know how to explain it other than that, but they kind of went around and, and just kind of helped with the uh, religious ceremonies and things like that. Yeah, they had normal jobs, lives, houses, and families and everything else. And uh, at the same time, that was another aspect of being a tribe, being a member of the tribe of Levi, is that you would have all these additional duties. Well, you didn't have your own land like the tribes had, but you did have your own houses, and there were even some cities that were Levitical cities. But they lived like everyone else. They just had an additional job description by God, you know, that they had to uh, fulfill these other religious obligations. No, they settled. They settled and they had their places that they lived and they had their families and stuff like that. But at the same time, people would, you know, ask them to come in and do things. So they weren't necessarily like the nomads or anything. There may have been some that were, but... um, Well, I think the approving of the houses, that if they were lepers and stuff like that, my thought is that that would be the 
priests of Aaron, but the Levites would have assisted in some way. No, because not in the beginning. Yeah, later on they were. And, and the other thing to keep in mind is none of this stuff is so black and white. Because the understanding is the way that it's written, but in practice, the Levites probably did a little more than, than what's written, and the, uh, the priests of Aaron probably did other things in, in addition to what they were doing. Yeah, Dorothy. The father of John the Baptist would have been a priest of Aaron, and they did take turns. But we're talking a few centuries in the other direction. Um, by the way, uh, not to open up, this goes back to some of you have heard of the Nazarite vow. So there was uh, Samson, for example, that we're going to get to. So there were some other types of vows and people that lived a certain way that weren't necessarily Levites or priests, Aaronic priests, but they still had particular duties and and oaths and things that they had to live by. I never would have guessed that Levites would have been so popular. It's like I should have I should have looked more stuff up. So, okay. And by the way, incidentally, how many of you ever heard the name Cohen? The last name Cohen. So the last name Cohen um, is a the word priest, and so. They actually did this um, DNA thing. You can, you can check the, uh, the mitochondria of the DNA and figure out a lineage that goes back. And they found that people with the last name Cohen have an abnormally uh, similar DNA structure, which is about at 50% when the general population is about 10%. So apparently that genealogy that says it goes back to Aaron, is there's something to that. And it's still there in theory with Jews with the last name Cohen. There's another last name as well, but uh, I can't remember it. Is it an Irish name? <laughs> yeah, there's Cohen, but there's another Jewish last name that means priest. And, and they both have an abnormally um, similar DNA structure, which shows that there is something to be said about how they do go back in their... Uh, genealogies. So anyway, that's, that's a tangent. Where am I at? All right. <clears throat> Priestly installations. So there would have to be this robing that took place. There would be this anointing that would take place. So when you would uh, anoint a priest, you would take, you know, curzum oil and you'd lay hands and you would anoint them. Uh, they also would offer sacrifices for sin. They would consecrate altars. They would offer burnt offerings there was an installation sacrifice, and there were rituals and regulations that were to be followed. And that's all contained within chapters 8 through 10 of Leviticus. Then you've got all the rules, clean and unclean. By now you all know what that means, right? Clean and unclean. And it really has to do with living within the holiness of God himself according to that original harmony and trying to model that in the way that people live. So anyway, that... That's that whole clean and unclean thing. So it lists animals, bodily actions and diseases, festival days of expiation. And part of those things, well, it does this for a few reasons. Okay, so why do they do the clean and unclean besides what we already know? 
One additional reason is it separates them from other people and other tribes and other nations. So if we're living in a particular way, it gives us an identity. Uh, In the old days, all the Catholics used to uh, not eat meat on Friday. And so there was a certain identity that comes with Catholics. Um, I remember in college, I went to Southern Oregon University, and this was in the late 80s. And um, every Friday, they would have fish. And so one day, I asked the head cook, why do you guys always have fish on Friday? And uh, he's like, I don't know. We just always have fish, you know. And so it's funny because they lost the reason why they did that. But that had to do with the Catholic identity, even in the state colleges. Um, But, you know, I I heard someone use the word like mackerel smackers. Like you mackerel smackers. And I'm like, that's creative. But but anyway, little things like Catholic identity, but they had their identity. It helped them as a people to be able to have a common um, lived out experience in a, in, in a way that kind of unified them and then also excluded other tribes and clans. So you had a question? Okay, why was a woman's menstrual cycle considered unclean? I always get the fun questions, don't I? So, Okay, blood, right? So blood is, is God's. And, and the understanding of the ancient uh, world was that life is given by God and that he'd breathe breath into someone and the, the blood is where life exists. And so because of that, that blood is sacred. That's why they would have to, when they bleed out animals and stuff like that before sacrifice, because, you know, blood is sacred. And so if it flows out, then you can, you know, you've got the, the animals and stuff like that you can eat. But since blood is supposed to stay in people, if it flows out, that goes against that um, purity law, which says that blood is intended to be in a person, not flowing out of a person. So it's, it's a subtle thing. It has nothing to do with, like, unsanitary or sanitary it has more to do with the idea of bodily fluids um, having an intention and if your bodily fluids stay within us then that conforms to the way things should be in a uh, a little bit of a metaphorical sense but it's all connected to that uh, original understanding of what would be considered clean and unclean or ritually pure or not is that too vague (laughs) you're just kind of looking at me there (laughs) Maybe. They didn't really have a good understanding of the egg thing back then, though. Because, like, what they used to see is that uh, the man would plant the seed in the fertile ground of the woman, and then the fertile ground would grow the baby inside. And, and so the, the woman was considered more of a passive receiver than a contributor of the egg and the sperm and all that stuff like we know today. I'm not saying I believe in any of this, by the way, but... <laughs> I'm just saying that was the common perception. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to get stoned myself here if I don't. Okay, but so there's a separation. It keeps us unique and identifies us. And then also there are some health reasons. Some of what we have, there are some good health reasons why uh, we should act in a certain way, especially when it comes to certain diseases and things like that. 
they may not have known exactly why things happened the way that they did, but they had some inkling, and they would put that into practice in certain ways. So part of that probably worked its way in there. And the, the major reason is it's failures in the natural order were frowned upon. That would be like those slimy bottom dwellers that walk on the water instead of swim. And, uh, you know, non-flying birds. So things like that. That's called like a failure. But what it really goes back to is this idea of holiness, going back to that perfect intention of creation. And it has to do with that purity. And it has to do with that. You've heard the word shalom. So that word shalom means to be in right relationship. And that idea of right relationship is more than saying hi. So if someone comes up to you and say shalom, you know, you'd say shalom. And that just means like hi or goodbye or whatever. But what it really is, is saying, you know, may you be in right relationship with God and his creation. So, so that's what they're getting at. It's also separating from the profane. It's encouraging justice. It's celebration of worship and feasts. There's the idea of transcendence of God. And there's the understanding of the moral obligations of the people who are with God. There is the religious aspect of practicing the faith by living according to the law. There's the family aspect where the families themselves um, work with one another to uh, continue the law. And then you also have time itself, which is considered holy. Remember in creation when I talked about it's not just the place but time itself is holy and that um, the holiness of time would be celebrated um, not only on Sunday, but in particular feasts and seasons, you know, so that's something somewhat unique, you know, the idea of time, but not absolutely unique because they do have, for example, I mentioned the uh, Mesoamericans, they had the Aztec calendar and, and days would be considered sacred as well. All right, I'll do... Numbers real quick in Deuteronomy, and then we'll take a break, and then I'll see how far I can get through Samuel and that sort of thing. And jo- oh, I still got Joshua. All right, let's get to the numbers then. So we have a similar divide as we found in Leviticus. So we have the census, so that's where they're taking the information for all the people. Then there are the laws. There are the offerings and the Levites. So for those of you who want to know a little more about the Levites, read chapter 8. There's the Passover. So there are certain regulations on how to celebrate the Passover well. And since Numbers is, Exodus is getting into the, um, going from Egypt into uh, exile. Numbers is what happens to Israel when they're in the desert. So you have the celebration of the Passover and the regulations with that. You have these different stops along the way, those desert pit stops. Then you have laws for sacrifices and priests. Then you have a few stories in there, um, including the story of the bronze serpent. You remember this when they get bit. And so Moses takes bronze and makes a serpent. And if they look at the bronze serpent, then they're healed from the bites. We hear this in uh, Lent because it reflects the, uh, the idea of Jesus himself who s- says, I will be healed up, I'll be lifted up. So Jesus is referring to himself as being like that bronze serpent that when he's lifted up on the cross, when we look at him and understand what's going on there, then we also are healed. And so that's kind of symbolic in that. But in this case, in the book of Numbers, 
the bronze serpent's held up. People look at it, and they're healed of their bites. So um, it's a way that God shows mercy on his people and heals them. They were being disobedient, and therefore they were getting bit by snakes. They turn back to God, and Moses allows, uh, and Moses, through holding up the serpent, allows the people to be healed, and then they're restored. So it's that kind of theme of, of disobedience, um, rebellion, and then repentance, and then restoration. That, that continues through the whole Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Then there are additional laws, and then there are laws about um, what they could take and what they could not take when they go into the land. So if, you, if they go in and they conquer a city, what can you take and what you can't take? Because you know, what they didn't want is when they go into Israel and they see all these Canaanite religions that are there in towns and cities in culture, they didn't want the Israelites to assimilate those practices. So there had to be a strict separation. Sometimes people wonder, is like, why were they so ruthless? They went into these towns and they would wipe out these towns and they would destroy and burn everything and they couldn't take anything out. Well, it has to do with that separation. The idea that Israel could not assimilate these other tribes and cultures and customs. Okay, so the last one was you've got Balaam and then Balak. So Balak was a king who hired Balaam to go curse the Israelites so that they wouldn't have any um, war authority to conquer them. And so as Balaam goes down to curse, God basically makes it where he can't, and Balaam has to bless Israel. So he was going to curse them, but he couldn't. And instead what comes out is he blesses Israel instead, and then Balak's like, I hired you to curse them, and what are you doing? He goes, I tried, I couldn't do it. Everything that came out was a blessing. And uh, at one point, too, it's like the, the donkey's on his way, and he's going to get, he's going to get the, uh, he's going to go curse them. The donkey stops, and he's whipping the donkey, and finally the donkey turns around and talks to him and says, what are you doing whipping me? It's like, I can't move because God won't let me. But it's a nice little story. All right. So here's the donkey. What have I done to you that you should beat me these three times? You have acted so willfully against me, said Balaam to the ass, donkey. That if, but if I had a sword at hand, I would kill you here and now. And then the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own beast? And you have not always ridden upon me until now? Have I been in the habit of treating you this way before? No, said Balaam. So Balaam gave voice to his oracle from Aram. Has Balak brought me here, Moab's king from the eastern mountains? So basically, after all this, he has to bless Israel and not curse. I found it a little uh, sad, actually, that at the end they talk about some of these wars that were happening. And, and uh, they, they had a war with the, I think it was the Amalekite, Amalekites. And as they did, uh, Balaam got killed too. And I'm like, oh, I didn't want him to get killed. But apparently there was a reason why, that he wasn't all good after all. All right, so Deuteronomy. Introductory Discourses by Moses. Now, Deuteronomy was actually one of the books that Jesus quotes a lot from. And uh, 
there are a few few books of the Bible that aren't read so much that Jesus quotes from quite a bit. You know, things like Zechariah and Daniel and Deuteronomy is one of them. And you'll notice in some of the law and uh, some of the sayings that Jesus associates with. So the word Deuteronomy is, uh, means second law. And law, of course, is the Torah or the teaching. It offers hope and blessing that God will not fail. Punishment is not final. And this is one of the quotes. One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. See, Jesus liked that one too, right? He quotes that with the temptations. So you have the introductory discourse by Moses. So that's chapter 1 through 11. And contained in that is the Shema. You know, you shall love the God, Lord your God, with all your uh, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Actually, there was a combination that Jesus did. I'm just going to look it up real quick and read it. Might help if I'm in the right book. There we go. Listen, Israel. Yahweh your God is one, the only Yahweh. You must love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Let the words that I enjoin on you today stay in your heart. You may tell them to your children. You shall tell them to your children. And keep telling them. And when you are sitting at home, when you're out and about, when you're lying down, and when you're standing up, you must fasten them on your hand as a sign and on your forehead as a headband. You must write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So that's what they call the Shema. Um, I should mention, too, by the way, um, chapter 6, 4 through 9. I'm going to mention, if you notice, I've been saying... Yahweh quite a bit, and uh, just so you know, that in a Jewish um, mixed company, that they would not express the divine name because it's sacred, and so that's why, for example, we used to have songs at Mass that say, Yahweh, I know you aren't here, and so because that was considered uh, abrasive to especially Orthodox Jews, the uh, U.S. bishops made a decision that in our liturgy, we won't use the word Yahweh. We'll just use the word Lord. And, uh, but to this day, when the Jews, when the Jews write about God, uh, they won't use the word Yahweh. They can say Elohim, and they can say Lord, and all that sort of thing. But they won't write Yahweh, and they won't say Yahweh. And if they write God, they don't write G-O-D. They write G, and then a dash, and then a D. And it's just a way that they want to show reverence to the divine name. I just mentioned that because I'm using Yahweh all the time because I'm showing the differences between those different divine names that we use. By mixed group, you mean Jews and well, meaning if you're, if you're sitting back and you've got a bunch of Jewish friends over and you start talking about Yahweh, that's going to be offensive to them. So, unless they're secular Jews. You know, but if, if they're Orthodox Jews, then you, know, you wouldn't use the divine name like that. Yeah, when you see Jews and they have the little box on their forehead, um, that's where this comes from. And you notice that they, it's saying apply this to every situation. 
And so they were saying whether you're standing, sleeping, um, lying down, sitting, basically the idea is that there's never a moment in your day that you don't keep this front of mind, that God is your God, you love him all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But that's the Shema, which you probably have heard. Then in chapters 12 through 26, you have a series of different laws. They call that the Deuteronomic Code. Then following that, you have a concluding discourse. This is where you have those blessings and curses. Remember when I talked about that covenant arrangement, and then the last part's kind of the blessing and curses? If, if I do this, may thus and thus happen, and if I do this, may thus and thus happen. And so it tells the people that they are to follow the, the rules and the laws as God has laid forth. And then finally, you have a final description of the death of Moses. And so the death of Moses, he gives his last farewell speech. And by the way, in John's gospel, when Jesus is doing the Last Supper in John's gospel, we don't have the institution narrative. We don't have the, this is my body, this is my blood. But you have a big, long priestly prayer, which is in the pattern of the death of Moses and his final prayer. You know, so just as, just as Moses kind of gives the last uh, prayer before he dies, well, Jesus is giving a last priestly prayer before he goes to the cross. So that's reflect. There are all these... I don't know if you've noticed already, but there are these different parallels that you'll find, and that's part of that salvation history thing I talked about, where you will have parallels and connections that go from the very beginning and find their way repeating themselves throughout the Scripture. So, like the younger son, older son thing, and, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. Okay, so I'm going to stop here for just a few minutes, and then... We'll see if we can make some headway with Joshua afterwards. So take a little break. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the scripture. May God bless you.